0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, we have reached uh, the halfway point of our series, Life in Gray, and we're so glad to have you either with us here for the first time, or we welcome back all of our regulars as we continue our series. Last weekend, we opened our service with a straw poll. We did a scruples question. Most people are familiar with the game of scruples. And, um, and so last weekend, we had so much fun with this that I thought we would do it again this morning to set the stage here for our talk this week, Life in Gray. Uh, last week, we kind of used the theme of, of lying. Is it ever acceptable to tell a lie? Right? And I think we would all agree that, generally speaking, God builds a pretty airtight case that lying is, is morally unacceptable. Right? We should not tell lies. We should be people of honesty. And yet, is it ever okay for us for a noble purpose such as surprising someone we love to actually tell a white lie? And overwhelmingly, this immoral congregation agreed that it was okay at times, that that it's not good to lie, it's not right to lie, but not every lie puts you at odds with God. So let's shift gears a little bit this morning and let me use this scruples question around the topic of stealing. I think we'd all agree that stealing is unacceptable. It's wrong. It's something we shouldn't do. Um, it is, after all, one of the Ten Commandments, right? So it's a pretty big deal to God. So here's the scruples question. You're shopping at Kroger, and you're checking out, and the cashier doesn't treat you very politely. In fact, you're a coupon person You had a coupon that did not expire, but it's from a different manufacturer, and she argues with you about it. You're in a hurry. You're frustrated. You go to your car, and when you sit down in your car, you look at the receipt and realize that you were not charged for one of your grocery items. How many of you here in the auditorium would go back in, find the cashier, and pay for it? Can I see your hands? How many of you would say, I'd kind of call it even, and I might just say, she got what she deserved, and I'm hurrying in a hurry, so I'm going to move on with my life, okay? How many of you? All right, several of us are honest enough probably to say we would do that or maybe have done that at some point in life. And, and if, if that's not you, let me give you another one that might even be a little more challenging for some of you, especially if you're a, a parent here today. You go to a restaurant and you order a a drink, but you're the only one at the table that orders a drink. Everyone else gets water. Halfway through the meal, one of your kids starts to enjoy your drink and asks you to get a refill. How many of you would get the refill? Can I see your hands? How many of you would ask to have it added to the bill and buy them their own drink? Can I see your hands? Okay. A little more conflicted. Reality is, we are faced all the time with life in gray, aren't we? How do we apply the Scripture, how do we apply the Word of God to how we live out our life here on this earth? Not everything as, as black and white as we would like it to be. And so what are these gray areas we're talking about? These are the areas to which God does not speak Specifically. There are issues in our life that we deal with that you cannot point to chapter and verse in the Bible and say, because the Bible says that, I simply can't do it. it. It means we've got to find principles that we can apply to those situations. And what we've been doing in this series is we've been talking about those principles and building a framework from which we can operate our lives in gray, Now here's that framework that we've been using, so let me revisit it. Right in the middle, the target is what we would call moral absolutes. These are the black and white issues that are found in the Bible. And there's many of them. The Ten Commandments are a great illustration of moral absolutes. When God said, do not commit murder, God meant do not commit murder. When God said, do not commit adultery, God meant what he said, right? There's no confusing God's words. There's no wondering, is there a way that we can skirt around this? Like, there is no gray in some of the things in Scripture. They are moral absolutes. The second outer band where things just get a little bit grayer are what we might call Christian traditions. These are time-tested principles, practices that are either tethered directly to Jesus Christ, he said them, or the New Testament apostles that lived them and practiced them. These are things that they did that you could not say necessarily. These are moral absolutes, but they are traditions that are time-tested. And so I want you to think of these Christian traditions in two different categories. There are some Christian traditions that are capital big T traditions. There are other Christian traditions that are Traditions that are small t traditions. Here was the problem with the Pharisees. They elevated small t traditions to moral absolutes. And Jesus constantly challenged them for doing this. He challenged them because when when Jesus wanted to do good on the Sabbath... They said, You are breaking God's law by doing good. They are elevating a small T tradition of how you carry out the practice of Sabbath, and they were applying it to everything in life and over applying it. They said to Jesus when he ate food without washing his hands, You are doing what is morally unclean. Why do you do that? They're elevating small T traditions to moral standards. And we got to be careful of that in life as well. We have a big T tradition in baptism. We all believe, I think we should, that the Bible makes pretty clear. Jesus made it pretty clear. The New Testament church practiced baptism as a form of declaring your faith in Christ. But the mode of baptism has been controversial through the years in the Christian church. And churches have split over that issue. People have been divided over that issue. Not in baptism, but how do you do it? That is a very, very silly thing, to have create division, and yet it happens. And then things get a little bit grayer when it comes to church standards. Now, every human organization has a set of written or unwritten standards by which they live, by which they operate. Um, What is acceptable for some churches is simply unacceptable for other churches. They're not moral absolutes. But they are church standards, and they get gray. Um, For instance, dress is a church standard. Look around this morning. It's very obvious Grace Crossing Church does not have a dress code policy as a church standard, right? But there are some churches where dress... There is an obligatory way that you are to dress. There is a church that I passed not too long ago that I know obligates their women to wear skirts and or dresses. And I passed the church and I saw a woman out on a riding lawnmower wearing a skirt. So it's not just about you've got to wear a skirt on Sunday, it's you've got to wear a skirt every day. And listen, I am not saying there is anything wrong inherently with that standard. That is that church's standard. And no matter how we may feel about it, they are able to do what they believe is right. But equally, I am not suggesting there is anyth- anything inherently morally right about that standard. It is a gray area. It's an area that every person and every organization must figure out what are the big rocks for us and what are the small rocks for us? What are the things, that, what are the hills we're going to die on? And we have a few. And what are the hills that we're not going to die on, right? We're going to say it's okay to think differently here. And then there's this final one, this final band, preferences and convictions. This is where things often go sideways on people. And so this is where we're focusing the primary energy of this series is on these preferences and on these convictions. These are the things that the Scripture doesn't specifically address or speak about. But they are things that we have a perhaps a very strong opinion about, preference of, and or a moral conviction, a spiritual conviction that drives us. And where things often get complicated with this is that we, we blur the line between a scriptural directive, what God said, and a spiritual preference. And when that line becomes blurry, we often find the waters of relationship get muddy. The waters of our own faith can get a little fuzzy. We can begin to judge or condemn other people who do not live life like we live it. Because here's what we tend to do, and we're all guilty of this. We tend to believe that what we believe is correct. About everything. And so what we tend to do is elevate our personal preferences and our personal convictions to a standard equal with God. We believe we become the standard bearer for for Christ, for Christianity, and for the church. So if anybody's going to measure up to God, they've got to measure up to me. Now we don't often verbalize that, we don't say that, but we tend to entertain those thoughts. In our hearts, and so as we continue our series this morning, we want to talk about more principles that we can apply for how we navigate through this these morally gray areas in life. How do we apply God's word to those things in those areas when it comes to life in gray? Last weekend, I gave us two uh, guiding questions to help us out. And I told you these guiding questions were going to be really the significant ones that we would build the series on. Here was the what was one of them we talked about that I just want to touch on briefly again this morning. Is it positive? When it comes to the morally gray areas, I think we should ask ourselves often the question, is it positive? 1 Corinthians says this. Chapter 15 verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins Good morals. Now, here's the reality. You and I are the sum total of the things that have influenced us in life. Our lives have been shaped and will continue to be shaped by the things that we allow to influence us. That's why I encourage people, be very deliberate about the things that you allow to influence you and the people that you allow to influence you because we are a byproduct of those things in our life that influence us. The second guiding question that I want to drill down deeper on this morning before we go into another text of Scripture and look at how this is applied is the question, is it wise? Is it wise? And I think of all the questions you could ever ask yourself about life in gray, this one is the most foundational for two reasons. Number one, it is a question that is fairly easy to answer. We can generally pretty quickly determine whether something is wise or whether it isn't. The second reason I think this is a great question is it is a question that you can ask for the rest of your life about every decision you will ever make. Listen, you will never get too old to ask yourself the question, is this wise? You will never be gray enough to ask yourself that question. That question is so good and it's so significant that you can apply it to absolutely everything that you will ever do in your life. And it is in that, the answer to that one question that can literally be the game changer when it comes to life in gray. So while I was in Bible college, one of the books I absolutely fell in love with in the New Testament And to this day, I still absolutely love it. It's got to be ranked up there, at least in my top two. And it's the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, what Paul does is brilliant. In six chapters, he builds a powerful narrative for how we live life in gray. The first three chapters of the entire book, Paul devotes to helping us to recognize and celebrate all that God has done for us. The entire first part of the book is telling us all the things that we are in Christ because we've been adopted into God's family. And then, beginning at chapter 4, Paul makes a very hard shift. And the shift begins with these words. Live your life, walk, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now here's what Paul is saying. Do not continue to live your life the way you used to live it because you are not the person you used to be. You are a person that I have transformed. You are a person that I've changed. And because I've changed you, I want you now to begin to live out your life differently. And I want you to live your life as a reflection of me. You know what Paul does next in Ephesians? is he actually builds this, um, this, this narrative for what life looks like lived out in gray. And in this very practical, instructive section, Paul gives very detailed instructions about everything from sex to marriage, um, to, to the way we think, to the way we talk, to the things we joke about and laugh about. I mean, it is intense. It is thorough, and it's a little bit intimidating. Because here's what Paul says, be imitators of God. Now, now talk about intimidating. God calls us to be imitators of him. And so in the chapter, as he begins this, he starts talking about what this looks like when it's fleshed out. And he comes to a very powerful section, 4 only four verses. But these verses... Provide a pathway for us for how we live our life in wisdom. How do we live out this guiding question of is it wise? And here are the four verses. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the lord's will is do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery instead be filled with the spirit a few years ago i was on a missions trip and i was preaching at a church in romania It was, for that country, a very large church, about 800 people in the service that morning. And at the end of the service, the pastor came up and began to lead the congregation through communion. It is the only time in my life that I faced internal conflict um, with taking communion. I was on the stage that morning, and I was struggling with, with really whether or not to participate in communion. There were two things unusual about communion that morning. The first thing was that they were serving wine. That did not create any internal conflict for me. It was the second thing that created internal conflict. There were two cups. So, halfway through the distribution, I leaned over to the missionary pastor friend next to me and I said to him, Where are our cups? He said, They're coming we drink last every single person was partaking of the same cups and and that was my moral dilemma in that moment not is there wine in those cups but can i drink it and keep it down knowing that hundreds of people have just enjoyed out of that same cup i was in a part of having some moral conflict it was a scruples moment for me thanks be to god that when we are weak god is strong right I got it down, all right? I celebrated the Lord's body and his blood together with my Romanian family. Now, here's what Paul is saying. Apparently, in the Ephesian church, there were some, some, some people that were enjoying communion a little too much. They were loving the celebration a little too often. They were partaking of wine in excess, To the point of drunkenness. And Paul writes and he offers um, really some incredible wisdom. He says, first of all, be careful how you live. Apparently there were some that were so carefree, they were living carelessly. They had become so carefree in their thinking that they were making decisions that were terribly careless. And it was affecting, not just them, it was affecting the body of Christ. It was affecting their reputation, the way that other people who were not believers were looking at their lives. And Paul writes to them, and like a stern father, Paul issues this incredible warning, the warning that we've given to every one of our kids, do not get drunk. He issues a stern warning. And he also provides them a compelling motivation. Why? Because it leads to debauchery. Now, That's a word you don't hear very often, do you? And it's a word that the New Testament writers didn't use very often. In fact, it only appears three times in the entire New Testament. Here's what's interesting about it. The word means wastefulness. So here's what Paul is saying. Drunkenness is a way that you waste a portion of God's life in you. It is a way that you waste an opportunity that God has given to you. Though we cannot say that drinking alcohol is inherently morally wrong or is a moral absolute that we shouldn't do it, what we can say with absolute certainty is that drunkenness puts us into a place that is outside of God's will for our life. It's not what God desires. It's not what God wants. Why? Because we're wasting. We're wasting the things God has given to us. We're wasting our abilities. We're wasting those moments of our life. And these next six words that he says, they are words that will change and create success or failure in every one of our lives. Here are the words. Not as unwise. Be careful how you look. Not as unwise, but as wise. Now generally when we're making a decision about something, the very first question that we're asking is what's wrong with it? While that might be an instinctive question for us to ask, it is not a constructive one. You know, there's this tendency to think that That if it is not immoral, if it is not illegal, if it is not unethical, then it must be technically okay. We tend to believe that. We tend to think, listen, what can be so wrong with it when there's nothing that is technically wrong with doing it? So if God didn't specifically say it, then it's okay. Right? Here's the problem with that thinking. That thinking leads to something that we very infrequently will verbalize. In fact, it will most often never even rise to the, the point of conscious thought in our lives. And yet it is the driving force behind that question. And it's this. How close can I get to wrong without being wrong? And that's really what we're thinking. Here's the Christian version of that. How can I get close to sin without sinning? And how far over the line of right into wrong can I go? And let me tell you, that's where it becomes a really slippery slope for many of us. Because we can tend to think that, 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 that if, it's, if it's not technically wrong, then it should be okay. I should have freedom and liberty to do it. And then how much can I do and get away with? And here's where we carry that logic. How close can I get to wrong without experiencing the consequences? Of it being wrong. In other words, how far can I go with what is immoral, potentially unethical, illegal, without facing unmanageable consequences? How far over the speed limit can I go before I get pulled over and I get a ticket? Okay? Right? How much can I do without experiencing a consequence? Every person that diets asks themselves this question every single day. What can I eat? How much can I eat? What can I get away with? Every teenager and young adult that's in a dating relationship is asking themselves that question. How much can I get away with? And what are the costs or consequences? Now, here's the reality. We ask ourselves, we don't say it, but we think it. How long can I ignore my financial problems? How long can I ignore my difficulties in life? How long can I ignore those things, those feelings I have before they create and I begin to face consequences of my decisions? And so Paul tells us very clearly, as we live out our lives, we should be very careful, not careless, but careful with how we live Not as unwise, but as wise. Why? Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. We cannot say alcohol is inherently evil. And we cannot even say that drunkenness will make you an evil person necessarily. But what I can tell you is this. There will be some evil consequences and side effects of not living our life carefully. If you don't believe me, just go to the local AA meeting the next time that it meets, and listen to some of their stories. And you'll experience some of what happens when people think I'm, I'm at liberty to do this. It makes no difference, and they're not careful. And so what Paul does is Paul gives us a motivation for living wise. Last weekend, we looked at Romans chapter 14. This weekend, I wanna look briefly to wrap up our time at First Corinthians another book that deals with life in gray, specifically. And here's some of the backstory on the narrative before we actually get into the scripture. Apparently, there were certain markets, meat markets, where food was being sold, and that food was sold to people who were offering sacrifices in temples of idol worship. And in the first century culture, it was not uncommon for that to happen. Well, what was taking place is people would buy the meat, they would go and give their sacrifice, then they would bring back the meat and sell it back to the market. The market would take that meat and reduce the price and would resell it. There were some people in the Corinthian church that had no moral objection to doing that. There were others... That this was creating spiritual heartburn for them. On moral grounds that that this meat had been contaminated. This meat had been used for unholy purposes. It was unkosher food. We should not partake. And Paul writes his letter to address the conflict and the challenge of what do you do When you have a moral objection to something, when you feel like, listen, this is a gray area, God didn't tell us, Jesus never said what to do here, and we don't really know what our next step should be. They needed wisdom. And Paul writes to give it to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse whether we eat. We are no better if we do not. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying there is an obvious difference of opinion when it comes to celebrating a meal. Now, for me, I do some of the grocery shopping. And um, there are two places that we generally shop, Kroger and Fresh Time. When I'm shopping at the butcher, I'm looking for really two things. I'm looking for quality, and I'm looking for value. And let's be honest, convenience, right? If you're already there, sometimes you go and you buy it. But if everything is the same with quality, then what's the determining factor often? It's the price. It's the value. And so those who were bargain shoppers, any bargain shoppers here, they love the markets close to the temple because it's where you could get the best deals. You could walk home where everybody else is paying two ninety-nine dollars a pound for ground beef and you got it for $0.99 cents or buck twenty-nine, and you're celebrating the fact that you got such a good deal. The problem began to surface when people began to exploit where they were buying it. Let's jump over to chapter 10, verse 27. If someone who isn't a believer asks you to their home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered to you without raising questions of conscience. In other words, if you like to shop at Kroger because you like the meat better and someone else likes fresh time, don't worry about where it came from. Don't make a big issue about where it was purchased. Just buy it. The person serves it. You sit down. You enjoy it on one condition. Here's the parenthetical statement. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? Those are two really good questions to ask ourselves. I've I've traveled internationally and I've had a lot of different foods and drinks offered to me. And the question for me every time are these two things. Is it something that I can return thanks to God for and is it something that I can enjoy? I think that's really important. But here's the caveat that Paul gives us. If you go to the home and you discover somebody has a moral objection to buying meat from a particular butcher because of the way the meat was prepared or the chemicals that were used in the meat or there are some moral grounds or objection on what country it came from and they have a reason and it violates their conscience, their faith. It brings them to a place of saying, I could never participate in that. Here's what Paul's making the point. Paul is saying, love always trumps liberty. When it comes to life in gray, love always trumps liberty when it comes to life in gray. In other words, can you eat it? Yes. But here's the big idea today just because I can doesn't mean I should. That's the big idea I want you to hear this morning. Just because I can doesn't mean that I should. Because love always trumps liberty, we make sure that we care about other people, whether believer or unbeliever. How will my decision impact them? How will my choices influence them? How will my witness for Jesus Christ be impacted by what I'm about to do? Could this have consequences, intended or unintended, that I would rather avoid? Is it wise? Is it wise? And I think when we begin to think that and ask those questions, God then helps us to make the right God-honoring decision as it relates to other people. Let's jump back to to chapter 8, verse number 9 through 13. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way, you wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. I want you to think about what Paul is suggesting here. Whenever I exercise physically, I am thinking about one person. When I exercise physically, I am dialed in on myself, my numbers, my time, my workout. And when I do exercise, which doesn't happen as often as it ought to happen... I'm not really thinking about people around me, right? I'm putting in my earbuds, and I'm really just focusing on what I'm doing. I can shut everyone else out around me. While that may be okay and acceptable when it comes to physical exercise, when it comes to your spiritual exercise of your freedoms, other people first. It matters what's happening to others around us. And what Paul is suggesting is this. If what I do, whatever it is, even if I have all the liberty in the world to do it, if it causes somebody else to stumble and fall, watch this. I do not just sin against them. I sin against Christ. Wow. That's sobering for me. That motivation alone makes me ever so careful about the way that I live out my life. Not in a legalistic way, but in a way that says I want to be sensitive and care about every other person and making sure that I'm putting their faith, their relationship with God in front of my own prerogatives. Here's what Romans says about this, chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. This is all about how do we edify? How do we strengthen? How do we help another person along in their Christian journey? Somebody that is fumbling and stumbling along, trying to get their traction to their Christian faith. It is our responsibility who are strong to come alongside them and shoulder the load to help them and to allow nothing to get in the way of that, even if we have the prerogative and the privilege to do it. A few other final comments from Paul. And then we'll close. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go to chapter 6 first. I have the right to do anything, but you say not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, here's what Paul is suggesting. There are things in our life that we think we are in control of. But let me give you a good rule of thumb. If you don't control it, it controls you. If there's anything that you cannot say no to, that is something that has control. And what Paul is suggesting here is, is though something may be morally or culturally acceptable, it doesn't necessarily mean it is spiritually beneficial. It may not be helpful. It may not be the best thing for your life. And so in chapter 10, Paul says this, verse 23. He adds to that and says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. It's a good way to think about it. Because there are some behaviors that are destructive behaviors. There are others that are constructive behaviors. Some are going to build us up. Others are going to tear us down. And what must make the determining factor is how does it impact the wider audience? How does it impact those with whom I'm in relationship? And I think all of this can be summarized in really one final statement that Paul gives us. In chapter 10, here's what Paul says, beginning in verse number 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Greeks, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. At the end of the day, I always, when I'm trying to discern whether something is wise, I always circle back to verse 31. Whatever I do, whatever I do, am I doing it for the glory of God? So as we close this morning, I have two questions that I want you to think about that I want you to prayerfully ponder before God today and I want you to think about through this week. And I'd like you to to write them down this morning. There are two questions that I think are critical to help us. As we think about navigating the waters of life in gray, how do we do this? How do we bring the principles of God and make them come alive? I think this question is perhaps one of the very best. Am I doing it for the glory of God? So here are the two questions. When it comes to life in gray, what am I doing in my life that is glorifying God. When it comes to life in gray, what am I doing in my life that glorifies God? Here's the second question. When it comes to life in gray, what am I doing that horrifies God? What am I doing that horrifies God, that disturbs him and should disturb me? There are things that all of us have the privilege in these matters of gray to bring before God. And I said it the very first week and I'll say it again. There are some of us here that need to loosen up. There are others of us that need to tighten up. We need to become balanced before God. Some of us are so rigid that we condemn everybody who does things that we don't agree with. Others of us, we are so loose and feel so much liberty that we have no standards for how we live out our life. We have no principles. And I think we've got to find that balance. And we only do that before God. We only do that by being honest before God. What is it in my life that glorifies him? What is it in my life that horrifies him?